0: Today we'll look at how I did the research, um, just, in, just in some minor detail there. And then, um, perhaps more importantly, we'll look at some of the findings. This is a change we can see in gangs um, from their, perhaps their, the earlier half of their existence when it was all about violence and disorder. And we're going to look at this, um, this, this change toward organised criminal groups, that gangs are profit-driven criminal entities. And we're going to critique this because I don't think the view um, is accurate nevertheless it is incredibly widely held so we're going to challenge that um, firstly and then see what the consequences um, of that might be. So um, a history of gangs Um, seems incredible given the prominence that gangs have in um, in New Zealand society Um, and certainly in the popular um, consciousness um, everyone seems to have a degree of fascination with gangs Um, and yet understudied in New Zealand and so it was with a incredible, um, incredible mix of ignorance and arrogance that I decided I'd take this on and I entered the field, thought yeah I'll just go out and find out what it's all about, now this is all well and good um, in theory when you're sitting in a lecture theatre or whatever, um, but when you go into the street um, it becomes somewhat different um, on one instance a a guy um, who had quite a temper on him actually, um, pulled a knife out and held it to my throat and was going to um, poke me full of holes, which is a little disconcerting, and I've, um, despite what it seems like in the movies, and perhaps what I might have hoped, um, you lose all sense of cool when you've got a knife to your throat. It just vanishes. It, really, it does. And but, but anyway, he, he, he thankfully didn't. He left me largely unscarred, although um, I wasn't so lucky on other occasions. But he, he always tells a story of. Oh, Jared, you should have seen the bloody the blood rush from his face, just drain from his face. And I always politely sort of interject and say, it wasn't necessarily the blood draining from my face that was my concern. It was that it was going to start gushing from my chest. (laughs) Um, But um, um, but it was it was it was the only way I could really start. Unless you go, if you want to understand them, you've got to get into the field. And um, I thoroughly. Um, did enjoy, it and, I, and I, I, I got into it with a great gusto, actually, um, which is often why I come unstuck. Now, obviously, this can involve um, necessarily a little bit of um, rough and tumble and some illegal activities around the fringes, which one has to be mindful of. Um, you know, when you're three days drinking with the mongrel mob in Hastings, it gets a little bit tiresome. Um, the, the novelty uh, does wear off, particularly when um, the vernacular at that point is just barking, of which i 'm unaccustomed to the local dialect. But when you 've discussed the rugby league and the weather, um, my background has no um, association with, with gangs, um, and so it was actually really difficult to find common ground after a certain period. Now, I often tell, um, mostly because I think it will impress women. it doesn 't um, tell the, the, the sort of the war stories about my time in the field. Um, because they're exciting and they're interesting and they make a you know, reasonable um, dinner, well, do they? They make certain conversation around the dinner table. But what I found, one was I was largely treated incredibly well by the gangs. For the most part, treated incredibly well. Where there was violence um, that I was engaged in or was directed against me tended to be exceptions rather than the rule. And in fact, the life of most gang members, like the lives of all of us, tends to um, hold a high degree of, monotony everyday existence is very much the same it was countering boredom um, was much of my problem as it was um, the other way and another thing when I went into the field um, which I'm sure we can perhaps anticipate to a degree is um, that I thought they'd be such closed shops that I thought that the gangs would be so um, anti-my presence that even if I got in there they would just keep me at um, arm's length and I would get um, too little data, too little, inf- uh, too few inf- too little, and too few data is plural. That always stuffs me up. I went to court the other day to give some expert evidence, and I got the, uh, my evidence uh, drafted um, that I did to an assistant, and um, they made it singular. I was absolutely horrified. These are the problems us academics fret over. But my problem in the end wasn't to, um, uh, that, that I couldn't get enough information. It was that I got too much. I found that um, if you're confronted by illegal activity or you're told of stories that will be compromising to individuals or to groups, if that's disclosed in the next little while, um, then the person they're going to come to, the narc, is always going to be me, the outsider. So when I was told about these things, it it became incredibly uncomfortable. As much as there might have been a a little bit of excitement that you've sort of been in and that you're getting getting this great great information, um, it was uh, potentially incredibly compromising. Which brings me to ethics. Now, I'm often asked, and I and I never like the question, but I front foot it now um, in 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 an intelligent audience. Um, How on earth will you get? uh, Could you get university ethics approval for a student to go into the field and hang out with gang members for five or six years? Well, you don't. um, Is the short answer. What you do is you lie to them, um, and then you get approval. Now. Um, which is exactly what I did. I don't, don't condone it, but if one wants to do the research, that's what one must do. Now, um, research for the social sciences is in, in ethics, um, and ethics in the social sciences is incredibly important. The history of it is amazing um, and, and really highlights the need for it. But if I stuck by regulations, I wouldn't have been able to do the research I did Now, I think that's a loss and it's something that needs to be overcome. This does not mean in any way, shape or form that I entered the field without ethical obligations. I had a very, very strong ethical code. And largely that was around protecting my sources. Now, this makes sense at a certain point. I mean, I I think we can all appreciate protecting sources is important. Um, One, as individuals, you owe them a duty of care and respect that if they're going to participate in your research, then you should treat them in a way that... um, Doesn't endanger or betray them. Secondly, it's pragmatic. If I start betraying my sources, who's going to talk to me? It's going to cut your study short very, very quickly. And also, you're going to get beaten up um, as well, obviously. But thirdly, and much more broadly, it also means um, it's also a reflection on your discipline um, generally. If social scientists start betraying their audience, of course. Um, no-one's going to participate in this research. So I think we can see some very clear reasons why um, maintaining um, the, the, um, or protecting your sources is, is incredibly important. This is all well and good in theory until you're confronted with really difficult decisions. If people's lives are at, th- are at risk or you've seen some really ethically challenging behaviour, it all becomes very, very real. Is there a clear-cut answer to this? No, there's not. Um, but it may, it may, in a very real way, lead you to prison for not cooperating with, um, with, the, with the police. Now, of course, um, again, I, I love to talk about the ethnography and the fieldwork because I find it, um, you know, it's, it tends to be a bit more fascinating, but the scouring of the documents is, is really where the base of this research, or perhaps the majority of this research, was done scouring through... Um, Oh, which it does involve much less drinking. It's a little bit. It's a little bit um, more boring, um, but for all of the time that you spend um, for those little gems of information, those just little nuggets of gold that you find, um, it's actually incredibly um, rewarding. Now, um, if anybody's looking for advice, and I'm not entirely sure I give it. The only, someone asked me um, a young um, budding writer the other day if they've had any advice for a a young writer and I said well just don't start writing until you're completely sure you've done enough procrastinating it's the only sort of thing that tends (laughs) to work for me but um when you start a project like this and you have absolutely no knowledge I knew nothing of gangs they weren't from a sphere there was very little written about them I knew nothing except what we knew from the media about the same as what most most people know I guess um And so in that way, you don't know what's important. And so I collected everything. I went up to the New Zealand Herald for three days um, to go through their archive, ended up staying there for two weeks um, and just came back with a stack of photocopying literally that high of every time it was mentioned. I went through every parliamentary debate where gangs were mentioned and got every single statement um, pulled out of it. You'll never, ever regret having too much information. I promise you, you will regret not getting enough. Um, and of course, this um, isn't divorced from ethical considerations either. Um, there was some information that I gained through um, backdoor means or um, you know, perhaps confidential reports or, um, or even from within the groups that they could have pulled at any stage. In fact, perhaps the most, the most difficult challenge I was ever faced with in the field was having to go and gain permission to use certain documents that if they'd have pulled them would have had a massive impact on my work. And I did wonder if faced with it, I'm sure I would have pulled them because I can say that now. But God, it would have been awful um, just to protect sources. Now, it's all well and good speaking to people about these things. Um, any historian, I'm sure, will tell you that um, memories fade, stories get embellished. We don't know what is fact and what is fiction. Um, there's a process of triangulation that's used that um, to ensure that if one, if, say, if a gang member t- told me something. And then a police officer told me the same thing, and it was written up in the media the same way. You could get a reasonable idea that that may have been how it went down. However, I don't think we should be afraid of ambiguity. Um, it's better to say that there are multiple ideas around a certain certain subject than say something definitive. Um, just because I wasn't be able, uh, able to find a definitive answer doesn't mean one's not out there, that the future researcher can't find. And I think if we tend to write it in a book, it becomes... Um, uh, becomes fact. And so use the definitive cautiously. This is a bit um, rich coming from a, um, coming from a guy who wrote The History of New Zealand Gangs. I think if I was being much more honest and not trying to please my publisher as much, it may have been A History of New Zealand Gangs, um, I suspect. Now I may come back to that, but I just want to now go to some, some substantial um, topics and look at where gang- the gangs came from. So the first part of their history, they were a problem of violence and disorder. Um, and this was largely around inter gang violence. So here we see one of the first big pitched battles between outlaw biker groups, um, a collection of them that went through various names, um, and the mongrel mob in um, Palmerston North in 1970, 1971. Um, and this was all about the back patches. Now, what the back patches did is create really significant insider outsider distinctions. There were suddenly a them and us. We had gangs before the patches, of course, but the patches created real identities. So you knew who the enemy was, you knew who your friends were. Um, And they became, therefore, one reason, Um, they became trophies of war. And here we see um, the mongrel mob taking a black power patch upside down as a form of disrespect, and often it was stitched onto the backside of trousers as the ultimate disrespect. Now, often these instances would become quite public, so we would see... um, here, for example, this is in the middle of Cathedral Square. You can see a massive audience around now. There was a big audience there because there was a festival on at the time. And I'm, I'm informed that when this brawl first started, um, they thought it was a radical form of street theatre. You know, so people are crowding around to have a good look, um, which, all you know, this might have been potentially a giveaway, not necessarily, but the axe to the back of the head certainly was. Now... Um, Again, this is all sort of well and good while well, it's involving just sort of gang on gang, but but often it started to encroach and affect the public as well. And so we would see with outlaw, um, particularly outlaw motorcycle groups, when they travelled from town to town, um, they would pull at a service station, say not pay for the gas or steal or rob um, or, or or whatever, and sure as hell the poor you know service station attendant wasn't being paid enough to deal with it. And so we got the likes of shadow patrols where the police would follow the gangs. Wherever they went, and in, and in order to temper this this violence and disorder, which was quite clear and quite obvious, and of course one of the big um, one of the big problems was sexual violence. The attitude toward women within the gangs in those early days was absolutely abysmal, and we see the the Ambury Park ra- uh, rape um, from nineteen eighty six, late nineteen eighty six, um, repulsed the public to such a degree. Um, that it actually fundamentally changed um, public policy at one instance, a pivot point, as I call And so this is summed up here by Peter Taps, the Minister of Police at the time. We've had a gutsful of mindless thuggery. This is all about violence and disorder. Gangs are only about violence and disorder. But then suddenly, incredibly suddenly, um, if you think about it, really over the space of probably four months, we see this change. Um, And it happens... In the mid-1990s and 1996, to be precise, we see this fundamental shift of opinion towards profit-driven crime. And if we, um, the the more astute among us, of course, will recall that 1996 was an election year, unsurprising, Um, and and also we may recall that it's the first MMP election, so it was a, a very important election year. Now, let's have a look at the rhetoric around this. So here we see this quite nicely summed up, this transition Gangs are no longer groups of hoons who smash the occasional pub. They've gradu- graduated into serious organised crime. So They're going from violence and disorder to profit-driven criminal activities. Fundamental shift. This so is 1996. This is and Mike Moore was one of the biggest proponents of it. <coughs> now Mike, um, as he told me, was heavily influenced by information coming out of the police, largely the police association. And here we see it again: gangs dominate uh, dominate the drug trade and are responsible for 80% of serious crime. And this is then maintained. So we see going into the 2000s, 90% of drug crime, and these are just a, these are just a handful of exceptions. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of these. 90% of drug crime is linked to motorcycle gangs. Um, that's from the Drug Squad in Auckland. Um, and the methamphetamine trade is estimated to be worth uh, 1.5 billion a year, and 75% is controlled by the gangs. So we get this um, perception that the gangs are dominating the drug trade in New Zealand, and I think if I did a survey, um, not only in this room, but if I did a survey of all of Wellington, um, do gangs dominate the drug trade? 95% of people would put up their hand. 95% of people would put up their hand. So when I was in the field, I couldn't see it. I couldn't see the degree to which it was, um, which it was there. And so there was this empirical evidence facing me that I could not see this organised criminal activity. Well, maybe that's not surprising, because by its very nature, organised criminal activity wants to be under... Underground, I went to see a, um, a police officer, a prominent police officer, who told me that they had me fooled. And I went, "Oh God, they probably have it put my research back six months because it was just this was really rubbing against the grain." But the other thing that really got me, not only were as i was not observing it, I could see no evidence of it. Ninety-nine out of a hundred gang members, maybe let's say ninety-six, are hand-to-mouth guys. They they have absolutely nothing. They are destitute. If indeed the methamphetamine trade was worth $1.5 billion a year and gangs are controlling 75% of it, we should be seeing some monetary consequence of that. That makes sense. But there was none. So then we start to have a look. But in saying that, well, why take my word for it? There's no, you know, I mean, I, you know, no one knows me particularly well. I could be absolutely full of nonsense and my girlfriend tells me that on a regular occasion. I'm almost beginning to believe it myself. But So let's have a look at some hard data. The prison census data. So here we've got just before this change, this dramatic change um, in rhetoric at least was occurring, that the gangs in prison made up 2.2%, oh, sorry, just 2.2% of gang members who were, were incarcerated for drug offence, drug offences. Just 2.2%. of non-gang members. So does this change over time? The last prison census that we have, unfortunately, it's a shame they stopped them, we see that this is indeed increasing. So there is some truth in the fact that gang members are increasing their their, their drug activity. There's some evidence, but no evidence at all to suggest they're dominating it. 8.5% of gang members are in for drug offending. 8.9% of non-gang members, remembering Remembering, of course, that the percentage of gang members in prison is only maybe 10%. So they're outnumbered 10 to 1, damn near, um, in, in, in non gang drug offenders. So there's no evidence here that we can see. None at all. But maybe, just maybe, these gangs are so smart they're not getting caught. But the police know they're there, so it should come up, or they're not getting um, convicted. But maybe the police, are, the police are onto it, so maybe the police are arresting them and just not going to court. No. In the first decade of the 2000s, well, I've just done some just done some averages here. Arrests of gang members and associates, and remembering this includes associates as well. So we're casting the widest possible net. I'd be considered a gang associate in most statistics. We're casting the widest possible net, just not and 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 please excuse um, the really strange police um, categorisation. So they've got categorisations of cannabis only, new drugs, and not cannabis. I have no idea what these mean, but Um, But needless to say, the arrests, they make up just less than 10% of overall arrests. 10% of overall arrests. Now, I'd argue that, one, that's a heavily inflated figure because it includes associates. Moreover, I'd say that gang members are much more likely to be arrested because of their obviousness than non-gang offenders. We see absolutely no evidence, there is no evidence, for gangs dominating the drug trade. Now, just before I get called a gang apologist, I'm not saying they're not involved in it, They make up 10% of the prison population. They don't make up 10% of the um, general population. So if you're in a gang, you're much, much more likely to be involved in drug offending than uh, non-gang members. But gangs do not, do not dominate the drug trade. Now, why does this occur? How does this occur? How have we... if, If there's no evidence for it, if it doesn't exist... How have we come to this massive, widely held, firmly held belief that that's the case? Firstly, gangs don't talk to the media. So there's absolutely no response if you say something about the gangs. You can say whatever the hell you like, they won't contradict it. Now, and when gangs become um, a political football, as they often have in New Zealand history, one ramps things up for political effect, or indeed from the police association's point of view, remember, um, that they are a, they're a union for all intent and purpose, so they are a lobbying body. If you can build something up, you can try and gain resources. You can try and gain political um, advantage. And if there's nobody saying that that's wrong, um, then this can take on a life of its own, and the exaggeration can um, ultimately increase. The other reason I say this occurs um, is because the police um, unintentionally, I would argue, create it. And this is a concept I call blue vision. Now, I'm going to make a disclaimer here. Firstly, the New Zealand police are excellent, absolutely excellent. Um, If you look at them uh, and compare them to their um, international um, peers, you'll find that um, the New Zealand police force compares incredibly well. I I can't say enough about them. Their lack of corruption, um, there's always the odd exception, of course, but their lack of corruption generally is amazing, Uh, much to the chagrin of most professional criminals. You can't buy a cop off in New Zealand. Terrible bloody thing as far as the crooks are concerned. Um, so, so in no way, shape, or form I'm anti police. In fact, I'm pro police. Um, furthermore, um, in my book, uh, I outline those matters that they lack like, that they're not corrupt. I, I, I outline matters, uh, I outline examples where their policing has been exquisite, and that they are the other that um, they the, uh, the, the templates for which they can they go forward policing gangs. But in this one instance, they say they've got it wrong, and they oh, they torture me for it. They, they, the police do tend to be, God bless them, incredibly bloody thin skin. Um, oh well, I mean it's just a fact, you know. Um. Now, the um, you just got to know that comment's going to get me in trouble, you know? uh, I'll be arrested. I won't leave you. Um. Now, well, okay. So sorry. This this idea of blue vision. The. Um, this stems, in part, now I, I know often people will say to me flippantly, um, you, know, oh, you know, isn't the Rotary Club just a gang, or isn't the police just one big gang? Um, no, they're not, you know, they're not. Um, we, we, we know they're not, um, and, and, and while the defin- definitional elements are extremely interesting, um, I don't think we can look at those groups and call them gangs. Nevertheless, we can see some similarities between the police and gangs, and I think they're important. They're both uniform bodies. They're both male. Tend to, t- traditionally, been um, tend to be male um, orientated. They're very strong internal cultures, insider-outsider perspective. I would argue strongly that the feeling of power and pride and purpose that a young police officer feels when he's left the uh, you know tra- the training college um, up here in Porty and the, uh, goes onto the beat for the first time, puffed up, as it? almost identical to that, what a new gang member feels when he puts on his patch for the first time. There are some similarities here, but they can be overstated, because more importantly, of course, is the differences between these groups, which um, exacerbates this idea. The gangs, of course, are highly antisocial and and, and make no bones um, about it. The police are highly pro-social. One's wanting to break the law. The others are wanting to enforce it. So, again, there's just this oppositional culture that puts them necessarily, I think, into a sort of a confrontational position, naturally so. Now, the other reason that Blue Vision can exist, why the police can have this um, uh, gain a sort of a false impression um, of the gangs, is that they're so bloody obvious. Most crooks or criminals tend to want to go underneath the radar so we don't see them. The gangs, of course, are New Zealand's traditional gangs. Anyway, and this is changing, and I think, well, you know, this is why I think patch bands and that are, you know, it's potentially a bit dodgy. Um, I think if you could, uh, if, if 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 we could put um, patches on Al Qaeda terrorists, we'd leap at it in a second. You know what I mean? Um, we want to remove the self-identifiers from our our crooks, but the obviousness of gangs means that they're in the cops' faces all the time. So it's quite natural you'd be attracted to their offending, and it may balloon into much more in your mind. Um, They're not. Now, equally importantly, this is that the police tend to... The police police aren't sociologists, nor should we expect them to be. There's probably too many of those anyway. Um, But they're lacking high-level systematic research. They tend to rely on street-level information. If you recall the 1.5 billion of methamphetamine, um, the 75% of gang member statistics, that came about through interviews of beat policemen. Not systematic interviews... Just beat information What's well, hardly rigorous, hardly rigorous, yet that information tends to stick. Now, what happens then, what happens if the police conduct high-level systematic research? I'll tell you what happens. They find exactly the same thing I did, exactly the same thing I did, because it's happened in 1999, published in 2000, McArdle Report, um, found that gangs did not dominate. And in fact, um, McArdle had to make specific questions to ensure that what he called the normal idea of um, uh, of organised criminal offending, i.e., that meaning gangs, um, was probed past. Yet, it makes absolutely no difference to the police. We continue to get, who continue to maintain this rhetoric around gangs dominating organised criminal offending. We believe that gangs are formed and exist around profit-driven crime. Untrue we get this idea and this perception, this widespread perception, that they dominate the drug trade in New Zealand equally untrue. Nevertheless, exists. Now, this becomes, under the right conditions, most often blue vision, and I think it can be used in in, in several examples, not just the gangs, but um, tends to exist solely in police bars, um, police parties, Um, the indoctrination, and I use the term advisedly at um, police training colleges, uh, the police training college, and it tends to be quite contained within the police. Given the right conditions, particularly the right political conditions and the fact that there's no um, uh, systematic research or or, uh, independent systematic research, academics or the like, or no pushback from the gangs themselves, it can widely spread. And so I'd say we all suffer from it. Unlucky. Now, this does matter, and in case you don't believe me, I'll repeat it. Um, The reason this matters, one, this is not just a matter of... um, Intellectual accuracy or academic accuracy and intellectual curiosity, this is um, a matter much bigger than that, I think, and that is around the use of resources, scarce resources, public resources within the police and the like where we target certain groups um, to a degree that um, is unwarranted, um, which can risk certain issues. but, But most importantly, perhaps the groups that are committing the majority tend to do so with a reasonable degree of impunity. Biggest drug dealer I met when I was in the field um, researching gangs over those many years. Biggest gang member I met, ah, sorry, biggest drug dealer I met looked more like me. In fact, it looked identical to me. had actually much more expensive clothes on, in fairness. Um, And lived in Kashmir Hills in Christchurch, a very exclusive suburb of Christchurch. was not in a gang. It's not unfamiliar. Now, what does this mean for um, our research, bringing this back to this idea of creating a history It's been quite troubling for me. It's been quite difficult for me. And um, uh, not that I'm asking for sympathy um, at all, actually. although if you want to offer it, that's fine. Um, I'm certainly not. um, But if in a soundbite, and that's all you tend to get through the media, if in a soundbite I say the gangs are organised criminal groups, um, that they exist for for, for profit-driven criminal activity, and they dominate the the drug in New Zealand. If I say that in the media, everyone's just going to nod their head because that's what we're used to hearing. And of course, yeah, excellent, nice point, um, nice jacket. Um, if I get on and say, look, to be honest, that's not quite right. That's not true. They're not dominating the, um, the drug trade in New Zealand, and um, they're not—they don't exist solely for profit-driven criminal purposes. People are going to go, what? Ex- excuse me, you're an idiot. Um, but that's all I can say because you only get that fifteen seconds or so—that that, that small sound bite. Um, so people are necessarily going to question. Um, you and it 's incredibly difficult to go against the orthodoxy. I have a v- hell of a time getting the police to return my phone calls these days, which seems to me to be a little unfortunate, not least because um, uh, you know it inhibits potentially an idea of freedom of speech, but um, also it means that the police can never be wrong if people are silenced like that and I think we can all recognize that that 's perhaps um, an issue. Just returning to the idea that we 've got so much to be pleased of about the New Zealand police. this is being recorded, Mike bush. Congratulations. Um, now I'm gonna I'm, I'm just gonna finish. Um, and and one of the reasons I say this of course, because I'm starting a book on murder. Now the gang book damn near killed me. Not necessarily because of the gangs, but because it was such a big and broad history. If people have read it, and I encourage you to go and buy it, it's brilliant. Um, and also I, I need a new umbrella. Um, uh, but because it, it was it's a very detailed book. It was um, incredibly hard to write. It was um, it was agonising, and I and I don't mind telling you that there would have been two or three occasions where I genuinely had head in hands and didn't think it was going to be finished, which was a soul-destroying um, few moments, I've got to say. Um, so then, of course, I I, I decide never again shall I tackle such a big topic, and then I immediately start a book on the history of murder going back to pre-colonial New Zealand. Um, now... Uh, here, obviously, I need um, the cooperation of a lot of people, which um, comes back to that idea of building trust within the field and ensuring what you do um, you do with integrity. The important part about maintaining those um, participant the, the trust of participants um, now comes back because my credibility in the scene exists. So I hope that ties in. Now, I just want to um, end with one thing that um, I might be the the last person in this room to have discovered. Um, and that's the importance of social media. I um, I started a Facebook page on gangs, which I think now is about 15,000 people following. It's quite quite large, reasonably so. Um, and I did that to, to try and flog my book, if I'm not, uh, if I, not to put too fine a point on it. Not really seeing too much value in it um, at all. And even when I started one for murder, uh, I thought... I did it really just so boffins potentially or interested parties could watch this process of a book unfolding. It's a really interesting, you know, going from nothing to something is kind of cool, um, and the, particularly in the process of writing a book. Um, and I thought that might be interesting to people. What I've discovered is that it brings out so many people who want to help you, um, not only um, people who are involved in in, in some um, way or another, um, which might be another reason why the police now give me a call, um, uh, but also just people who've got documents or old books or things like that. It's been absolutely brilliant. Um, and with that in mind, if anyone is thinking about committing a murder anytime soon, if you could give me just a call first, that would be bloody brilliant. <laughs> uh, actually, I might have some names as well, if truth be known. Um, and the, and the, just finally, I'm going I'm to end here, and um, I'm, I do apologise for doing this. Um, the other thing I've um, really succumbed to is Twitter. My handle is at Jared Gilbert NZ. Now, the reason I say that is because people must be on Twitter here and I want you to follow me. My girlfriend has 2,500 followers, which is roughly 10 times more than I do. That's really tough for my ego. She's a columnist for the press, actually. So not only is she a better writer than me, she's got more Twitter followers. I've got to win at something. Um, Listen, thank you very much. I do hope that has been um, in some way um, uh, more enlightening than it is enraging. Um, And um, I do... Thank you so much for coming, particularly on um, such a miserable day. And I, I thoroughly look forward to questions. Thank you.